Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to this special episode of the podcast, which is part of our series on disabilities in the Earth System Sciences. Joining me in a minute is my co-host and co-producer, Caitlin Naughton, who came up with the original idea for this series. This episode has been a long time in the making. A while back, me and Caitlin asked people to submit their experiences of working with a disability in the Earth System Sciences, and we received so many wonderful contributions, and we even had some full-length interviews. You can go back and listen to those in the previous disability episodes if you haven't already. Here in part four, we will hear or read some really nice, lovely contributions, and we'll spend some time discussing them, me and Caitlin. I'll mention the Twitter handles for everyone at the end of the episode. So specifically, we have an audio contribution from Crystal Vasquez, who is a PhD candidate at Caltech. Crystal also runs the Chronically Invisible blog, which you can check out online, and there's a Twitter account for that as well. Next, we have an audio contribution from Dr. Rocio Caballero-Gil, a geoscientist with a chronic illness and a co-founder of GeoLatinas. We also have two really excellent written contributions, one from John Robson, a principal research fellow at the National Center for Atmospheric Sciences in the UK. He uh, writes to us, he wrote to us about his experience with dyslexia. And then finally, we have another written contribution. This one's from Ed Dodderidge, who is an oceanographer currently working and living in Tasmania in Australia. He is the partner of a person with a chronic illness, and they were so kind to share their experiences with us. That's something that I can relate to. My partner has dealt with a chronic illness for most of her life now, and it's been a big part of our life together. So we, we talk about that some. Let me just say thank you so much to my contributors on this episode. It's amazing that all of you were willing to be so open with me and Caitlin and with the audience. I'm sure that what you've shared will help people better understand these issues, and I hope that it will help other people who may be living with a disability. Okay, let's get into it. Here we go. Okay, so thanks for joining me, Caitlin, and thanks for thanks for being the co-producer for this series, and thanks for sharing the idea with me to have a whole series on uh, disability in the Earth System Sciences. Um, it's been well-received. People have been enjoying it. They've been getting something out of it. Um, I know not too long ago you wrote a blog post for Stammering Awareness Day, which yeah. I don't mind time stamping my podcasts. I think that's okay. Like that was not too long ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, how did that how did that go over? Did you get much feedback on that? Mm-hmm. So I got got a really g- good reception from it. Get, get actually, it wasn't my idea. I was approached uh, by Bass. Um, to see if I wanted to write this. And I was really chuffed that they sort of took that initiative. Um, And then I worked with the comms team to write some thing and I sent them some photos and they laid it all out really nicely. And I think it turned out really well. And I got some nice feedback from other people at Fast People um with family members that stammer people that that stammer themselves but to a degree where very few people would ever 
notice. Um, and yeah, just like starting those sorts of conversations with other people in the building. Um, it was really cool. It was really nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm glad to hear it. And I'm glad to see that you have this venue for getting some ideas out there that, uh, you know, able, able-bodied folks like myself might not otherwise get exposed to. It's been, it's been really enlightening for me and it's been a great education and, uh, learning about the, the different modes in which some people, uh, live, you know, with various disabilities and, um, just thinking about the whole thing. It's been really, really useful for me and I, I'm sure for lots of other people as well. Uh, so this episode, we basically are going to share some contributions from listeners who have were kind enough to send in some audio recordings, and t- some people sent in written descriptions of what their experience with uh, a disability you know, has been like. And uh, basically, the, I think we're just going to play them and maybe have some reactions to them and see if anything comes up. Yeah, does that sound sound all right? Mm-hmm. I think that sounds. That sounds good. Good. Okay. So our first contribution comes from Crystal Vasquez. I hope I'm pronouncing that all right. That's who we wanted to start with, right? That's yes. The, yeah. Yes, okay. That's right. So I'm now going to try sharing my screen and sharing my computer sound, and let's hope that this doesn't break everything. <laughs> uh, okay. So here we go. Contribution from Crystal Vasquez right here. Hi, I'm Crystal Vasquez, and I'm a PhD candidate at the California Institute of Technology, or Caltech. I'm an atmospheric chemist, a part-time field scientist, and I'm also disabled. I'm diagnosed with hypermobile otis Danlos syndrome, which is a genetic condition that affects my connective tissue. Essentially, it doesn't form correctly, making it weaker and more bendy. Connective tissue, for the record, is present in all parts of your body. Most people will think of your joints or maybe the collagen in your skin, But connective tissue can also be found in other places, such as in and around your organs, surrounding your nerves and blood vessels, and even make up some components of your immune system. So despite the common misconception that EDS is just painful, flexible joints, it can truly be a full-body experience and its symptoms can present differently in everyone. For me, EDS means chronic pain, chronic fatigue, and dysfunction of my autonomic nervous system, which for the record controls my heart rate, body temperature, digestion, those kind of things. This translates to limited mobility, limited energy, and shortens the length of time in which I can stand upright. As such, I'd be surprised if there's any aspect of my science career that has been left untouched by my disability. Standing at a fume-hooded lab, analyzing data at my computer, and just fieldwork as a whole have become a lot more challenging. I say become because even though EDS is a genetic condition that I've likely had since birth, it was relatively benign until about my third year of grad school. Becoming disabled in my early 20s was a huge paradigm shift. Before then, my self-worth was very much tied to my productivity, but now my body limits how much I can get done in a day. For instance, a full day in lab could cost me three days of at-home recovery. But I don't think that means I'm not a good scientist. Really, it just means I need to be a little more creative in how I adapt to my situation. Trust me, I've learned to do a lot of work from my couch. As for accommodations, EDS presents differently in everyone, so specific accommodations may vary with each individual. But I think that can be said for a lot of different conditions. The same disability can look different on different people. However, I'd argue that science should be more accessible in general, as this is one of the main reasons that disabled people are so severely underrepresented in STEM. 
In the U.S. where I'm at, even though something on the order of 20% of Americans live with a disability, they represent only 6% of the STEM workforce. Types of accommodations that I would personally like to see? Accessible lab spaces with wide aisles and wide automatic doors that are easy to navigate and can accommodate mobility aids. Adjustable height workbenches or fume hoods that are not only more accessible to wheelchair users, but also allow you to pull up a chair if you can't stand for long periods of time or just can't bear to sit on those uncomfortable lab stools all day that have no back support. I'm not sure if there's a market for this, but more ergonomic equipment like pipettes and tools would be fantastic. Because of the nature of my lab, I use tools a lot, and my wrists and fingers often hurt for days afterwards because of joint issues. On a day-to-day -day basis, I think one thing that would be really helpful for disabled scientists and the disabled workforce as a whole is allowing for unscheduled telework. I want to emphasize the word unscheduled because some days I'll just wake up in a lot of pain for no reason and wouldn't be able to survive the commute to campus. While I'm personally privileged to have that flexibility in my research group, I know that's not the case for everyone. We really have to get rid of this archaic idea that you're only doing work if you're seen at work. I could really go on, especially if we start diving into the inaccessibility of fieldwork, though I'd much rather point you to scientists who are better versed in this issue like Dr. Anita Marshall from the University of Florida or organizations like the International Association for Geoscience Diversity. I will say, though, that even while facing inaccessible spaces at work, my colleagues do make the day-to-day -day a little more bearable. I'm really privileged to be in a supportive environment where I can be pretty open about what I can and can't do. And more importantly than that, when I say I can't do something, my colleagues actually listen and accommodate. For instance, the field studies I'm a part of typically span over a couple of months, and I simply can't be in the field for that long without it being detrimental to my health. So, for example, in the last field study I was a part of, my lab and I coordinated with each other so that we could come in and relieve each other from the field, which, if I'm being honest, didn't just benefit me, but also everyone who was involved. To end this, I was asked what are some good things about having my particular disability as a scientist, and I'll be very honest when I tell you my first instinct was to throw my hands up and say absolutely nothing. With a disclaimer that I'm still very new to the life of a disabled person, and I'm combating some internalized ableism, having a body that doesn't work a lot of the time really sucks and has interfered with my degree progress multiple times. That said, I think as a disabled scientist, I can bring a new perspective to scientific research. If we just look at climate change research for a second, there was this great article in Science Letters in 2019 that laid out how climate change will disproportionately impact those with disabilities for reasons that range from accentuating inequalities that already exist to difficulties evacuating this community as extreme climate events become the norm. As such, it's really important that climate change research and climate change policies keep disability communities in mind. Having disabled scientists as part of your team is definitely one way we can make sure that these communities are represented at all levels of policy development. Great. I thought she covered quite a lot really yeah. efficiently, like in a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. What, uh, what do you think? What came up for you there? Mm -hmm. So the theme emerging there was this idea that in science, there's this expectation that you will work at least full time and you will be in the lab for all of that time. And that's really ex ex exclusionary since there's mm. very few 
people that will be able to do that, whether because of their physical health or their mental health or uh, family responsibilities. And so I think that's something which is really quite harmful. And if we can think a bit more flexibly, is that a word? About um, about flexible working and part-time working. I think that would benefit disabled people, but um, everyone as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Crystal Vesquez sent along a little bit of a blurb that she wanted yeah. us to add on here um, because she has started a website. She's been involved with this. I'll just read uh, what she sent us. So Chronically Invisible is a website that wants to showcase disabled scientists and engineers. After all, when was the last time you learned about a disabled scientist? And no, Stephen Hawking doesn't count. The representation is not great. In addition, this website also plans to discuss issues that might help explain why disabled people continue to be underrepresented in STEM and how our exclusion can end up being detrimental to some of the issues science is working to fix. So the site should be live now. They uh, the plan was to launch back in August, and I'll double-check that uh, before we kind of release this. But you can visit chronically-invisible.com to sign up for email notifications. And Crystal goes on to write, or if social media is more of your jam, you can follow us on Twitter at chroninvisstem, so C-H-R-O-N-I-N-V-I-S. S-T-E-M, and I'll tweet those out, and I'll put them in the description as well. I'm just going to click on the website. I'm going to see if it'll if it'll open up for mm-hmm. me here. So, chronically invisible. What's, uh, sorry, my email and my calendar is all trying to open. I really didn't want that. There you go. Okay. It's, uh, it's live. We're looking at it now. Yeah, great. Uh, Sigrid Phyllis Sterner, uh, radiation biologist with cerebral palsy. Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin. Uh, Nobel Prize winning chemist with rheumatoid arthritis. Good. Yeah, it looks like she's gotten started. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a good good start. It's a good start. So that website yeah. is live now. Good. Um, anything else we wanted to talk about for, for Crystal's contribution? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot in there. Was there something that you, um, that spoke to you particularly? I liked the idea of, um, working hours being truly flexible yeah. and you, you kind of touched on this already. I, but she used a, a phrase to describe that it should be unscheduled, right? It should be unscheduled, flexible working time that in addition to um, allowing somebody the freedom of uh, working the hours that they can, that their body is going to allow them to work that uh, also not having expectations about when that should be. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess if you need to meet with somebody, that's one thing, but that's something that hopefully you and that other person can mm-hmm. figure out. But when it comes to the sit-down work, the kind of lab work or analysis work or numerical simulation work like, like you and I might do, um, yeah, that needs to be unstructured. So that was the, the thing I reacted to the most. And yeah, uh, that that is an example, I think, of an accommodation that could be helpful not just for folks who have a disability, but for also uh, you know, parents Absolutely. and for 
you know, people who need to juggle multiple constraints in their lives, uh, you know, people who just aren't able for whatever reason to be a hundred percent there for the research a hundred percent of the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think that's, um, that's a nice example of something that really could benefit everyone. Like, uh, like Crystal said. Yeah. Something else I thought was really interesting, um, about Crystal's experience is that her disability isn't exactly, um, acquired since she says it's genetic and she has always uh, had it, but she she only really started getting symptoms uh, fairly recently. And so so I think it's really interesting, the concept of um, starting your career as an, as, as an, an able-bodied scientist and then suddenly having to uh, cope with this disadvantage. Um, and I'm, mm. I'm not sure the, like if that in some ways w- would be b- b- better because since at least uh, y- you like get a f- foot in the d- door, you get started um with all of the advantages of being able-bodied, um, or if it's worse, since, since um, y- y- you girl, um, haven't had a lot of t- time to learn how to cope and what treatment options are be- best f- for you. So I suppose there are sort of benefits and drawbacks, um, but in general, I thought it was really interesting. And Anita Marshall is somebody, we spoke to her a couple of Mm -hmm. of episodes ago, and uh, she's another example of someone who, she wasn't born with her disability, but then she acquired it because she went through a really uh, horrible car accident. Um, And it sounded like that for her, and this is obviously very understandable, that there was a big adjustment process. She had to kind of adjust her own expectations about what her you know, research career was going to look like. And she had to um, just rethink everything, basically. And that, that, sounds, that sounds hard. That sounds challenging mm-hmm. um, to have a, an idea of how things might go. And then it can be painful to, to let that go. By the way, I, I want to flag up that I can tell that I'm, I'm holding back a little bit. And I think, I think I can tell that it's because, uh, I am a little bit nervous about saying the wrong thing. I am an able bodied person. Um, but we talked about this in the first episode. Yeah. I, I just thought it was important to flag it up and to say like, you know, if, if I need to think about anything differently, if I need to learn about something differently, I'm very open to that. So I'm very open to, um, you know, having my perspective questioned and having my, uh, having and and needing to change my worldview potentially in some ways. So Mm -hmm, I I just wanted to make that. Oh yeah. I just wanted to make that explicitly. Like this is a, a space where, you can do that. And people listening with disabilities can do that as well if they need to chime in. Um, you know, not in real time, obviously, but they can send messages and things. Mm-hmm. I think that's something where when the person isn't here talking with us, um, it makes that a bit 
more difficult because yeah. if you say the wrong thing or use um, outdated language or attitudes or something like that, that there isn't anyone there to correct you straight away. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, I hope that um, the listeners uh, can um, do that when this podcast comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm glad we flagged that up. Um, do we want to talk about John Robson's contribution or was there more on crystals that you wanted to talk about? I think, I think it would be good to look at John's. Good. Okay. So yeah, John sent us in a written contribution and, um, I guess I'll try to, to read net, read that now if that's all right. Um, so I'll just kind of go ahead and launch into that. Is that all right? Sound, sound like yeah, a good plan? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, either I could read it or I could let the um, I could let the the uh, accessibility feature read it to us. Which, by the way, I'm mentioning that for a reason because I actually do use that feature. Mm. Um, you know, even as an able-bodied person, um, if I am if I need to slow down a little bit, mm. if I need to hear like what what a draft sounds like when I'm writing, I use that read to me feature. Oh, nice. So um, it's actually really useful for me. I think sometimes when I when I read, I get going a little too fast, and that explicitly helps me. Just like that slows my brain down a little bit if I need to listen to it, um, and it it helps me you know process what it is I'm trying to say. Uh, so yeah, I'll just read it. <laughs> Okay, so this is from John Robson, and thank you, John, for your contribution. I must admit, I wasn't sure exactly what to write here. Partly, as I wasn't sure what you would find interesting, but also as it's quite a big subject to get your head around. But before I go too far, Caitlin, we've not met, so I should briefly introduce myself. (laughs) I'm John, I'm a climate scientist, and through the audience as well. Uh, I'm a climate scientist working for... NCAS, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Science, based in the University of Reading. John started his PhD in 2006 and finished in 2010, and he's been working at Reading ever since. So John's research is mainly focused on decadal timescale variability in the North Atlantic, its impacts and weather, via predictions of the ocean variability um, and weather. I said weather. Oh my gosh, I'm not reading, I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> I'm going to say this last sentence again. Um, so John's research is mainly on decadal timescale variability in the North Atlantic. Its impacts and whether, via predictions of the ocean variability, we could improve regional climate predictions. Okay, so I'm just going to read it straight from him now. Yeah. This is John talking. Uh, as I told Dan, I'm dyslexic. I was diagnosed as moderately to severely dyslexic by an educational psychologist just prior to sitting my A-levels when I was 18. Uh, so for non-UK folks, this is uh, these are exams that you take when you're roughly U.S. high school age, um, and these exams end up influencing what you can study at university if you go to university, for example. Um, I was assessed to have specific learning difficulties related to reading, including proofreading, writing, spelling, short-term working memory, and information processing. The latter two are associated with, in particular, 
a slower ability to absorb new information, spoken or written, a slower ability to marshal information and construct clear sentences and arguments, and problems in responding quickly in situations that require thinking on your feet. For this reason, I particularly dread dealing with the media or when you're put on the spot in a meeting. Um, I'm going to take a brief pause here to say that I've worked I've worked with John quite a lot uh, with some in terms of some project management stuff, um, and I, I hope it's not insensitive of me to say, but I would I never would have noticed that. Like John is so on top of it in those meetings, and he's so plugged in, and um, that like I wouldn't have have guessed that he's um, that that he has uh, this kind of the dyslexic. Um, disability. Uh, and that's, I'm not putting any kind of judgment on that. I'm just saying that that's not something that I would have noticed. Um, okay, back to the back to the reading. There's a lot I could say about different things, and I'm not sure where to start. And I guess it depends on what you might be interested in hearing about. One thing I would like to say to people is that I think that it is important to talk more about dyslexia and to understand what people, maybe a great many people within our profession, have it to understand that people have it in our profession. Ultimately, it should not stop people from becoming climate scientists. This is why I try to be more positive and open about it these days. For example, dyslexics tend to be big-picture people, which I certainly am. However, I must admit that I've not always been very positive about it. Indeed, I've been fairly negative about it throughout most of my career and still struggle to be positive about it. There certainly are challenges associated with dyslexia, and for me it feels like there are more there are more challenges as I have become more senior. I have to read many manuscripts of collaborators and postdocs, often written by non-native English speakers. There are more proposals to write and review, more emails to write read and write, and seemingly shorter and shorter deadlines. These short deadlines are a problem, as my main coping strategy is slash was to work long hours. This has been a challenge to me recently, as a couple of years ago I became a father to a terrible sleeper, (laughs) and now I really don't have time, energy, or headspace to do the 45 to 50 hour weeks that I used to do. To pause the reading, that's something I relate to uh, really hard, is that, um, (laughs) that parenting was my introduction to a real wall, like a real, like, nope, you're not going beyond this. This is a now big limitation on your time and energy, and you no longer can simply work more. Um, that, Like John, that used to be my strategy, too, was just do more, just work more um, hours. Just don't have a social life. Uh, poor poor Steph, uh, my, my wife. Uh, um, so, well, she was working hard, too, actually, at the same time. So that's sort of what we were doing. But uh, anyway, the yeah, that was my introduction, too. A real upper limit was was parenting. (laughs) Okay, back to the reading. But there are many things I could talk more about. If it was interesting from day-to-day problems and things I struggle with, I could talk more about the different things I've done within my career and what I think I could have handled better, or that my diagnosis was pure luck and that I'm sure many people my age and older probably don't know they are dyslexic. Also, and of course this isn't all due to just dyslexia, but imposter syndrome is a major problem, especially for people my age and above, I think. Um, Yep, I can relate to that. 
I was essentially brought up being told by teachers I was an idiot for fairly trivial things, not being able to spell, not being able to memorize the alphabet. Uh, he says he only learned this in his 30s, or not being able to do mental arithmetic and timetables. And it's difficult to shake those feelings. But ultimately, I'm proud of what I've achieved, especially within my publications. In particular, they have all been hard work, but I'm glad I persevered. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the end of it there. I um, That was really good. Thank you, John, for yeah. that contribution. And I, my first reaction, if it's okay for me to start, was yeah. that I think it's really excellent that he's decided to be more positive and more, more open about it. Um, and we've said this before on these episodes, but it's worth saying again that when you don't talk about these things, then they, they just don't get normalized. Then they just kind of stay in the shadows and nobody quite knows what to do with them. But if we just get, get this stuff out in the open and show it to each other and show that like, yeah, there's different, uh, disabilities that many people are struggling with. And, uh, really the, the right thing to do is for us as a broader community is to make accommodations for those folks is to lower the effort barriers, lower the entry barriers and to understand that people work in different ways. It's a, uh, it really is a, it challenges us to rethink a lot of things that, um, needed, needed to be, uh, revisited, um, you know, 45, 50, 60 hour working weeks are not really sustainable for everyone. They're not really, and it's not really reasonable to expect everyone to, to do that level of work, to, to spend that many hours on their work. That is, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I also was really struck by when he said that, uh, you know, he was told by his teachers that he was an idiot for tri- fairly fairly trivial things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't. As far as I am aware, I don't have a disability, but um, I actually didn't do that great with timetables. It was actually like memorizing the times tables was not something that my brain seemed to be that great at. Um, and now I have a very mathematical job, so it's really not a, <laughs> it's really yeah. not a prerequisite. Um, and it's really unfortunate that his his teachers. Um, uh, he said, told by my teachers, I was an idiot. And so that wording makes me think that he, like, that it wasn't just that he was made to feel a certain way, that they were actually saying words like that to him, which is really harmful and um, really not great educational practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that that is, um, I hope it's better these days. Um, but from talking to to other people that stammer especially are those that are a bit older than i am a lot of them had very bad experiences with teachers and i mean Mm. teachers work incredibly hard and i don't want to say anything against them in general um Mm. but they are very big part of a child's life and if there isn't this sensitivity to uh disabilities of their students um i think there's the the capacity to do a lot of damage um that really can stay with you for the rest of your life absolutely i'd like to think that there's been a cultural shift behind that. I mean, even back in the 80s and 90s in the States, and it sounds like when, I think John and I are roughly the same age, 
you know, sounds like around the same time when he went to school in the UK, um, the, the mindset was just different. It was a bit more of a just, uh, you're either a winner or you're not kind mm-hmm. of mindset. You know, mm-hmm. it was, there was no room for, um, oh, my brain works differently. There was no room for, you know, neuro, neurodivergence of any kind. It was just, or disability of any kind. It was like, well, you either win by these metrics or you yeah. don't. And if you're not winning, I don't know what to tell you. And, uh, I guess you're just not cut out for it. And I guess you're just not going to be any good, which is really damaging and, uh, unfair message, uh, and untrue. Also, it's just, it's, it's really oversimplifying people's potential and really oversimplifying, um, like how growth happens and how development happens. And, uh, yeah, I'd, li- I'd like to think that there's been a cultural shift in recent decades. Uh, but this is, this also is not a scientific survey. This is a couple of people's anecdotal experiences. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I do think it's really great that John is a senior scientist. He is talking about this, um, because as as an early career researcher with with any sort of a um, disadvantage, whether that's um, having a disability or being a woman or or any of these things that don't fit fit the stereotypical mold of what a scientist looked like in the 1950s. Um, (laughs) It's really important to have role models, especially um, those which are quite senior, because Mm -hmm. without any evidence to the contrary, it's very, um, very, very easy to fall into the thinking patterns of it just isn't possible for Mm. me to succeed in my career because of this disability. But if there is a counter example that you know and is visible, um, that I think makes a really big difference. Yeah, that's a really good point. And John, if if you have to pick an example, um, I don't know why I said have to pick an example, but if you pick an example, John is super su- successful. I mean, he's very productive. He's the head of you know various work packages in several large projects. He's driving forward a lot of new research. Um, he's you know, heavily relied upon and uh, always called on to be like a big picture thinker and a, somebody who organizes projects. So, um, so yeah, he's a great example and I'm really pleased that he's shared this for all the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah. Anything else with, with John's that we want to talk about? Hmm. Yeah, I think those were the main points, which, uh, which I wrote down. What about you? I guess I'm looking at it here. He did mention imposter syndrome, which is less of a disability concern and more of a, um, a kind of psychological reality for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, 
the, the feeling that, oh, I don't really belong in research and mm-hmm. I don't really belong in my job and the feeling that they're going to figure out that I'm an imposter. They're going to figure out that I'm, that I don't really belong and they're going to kick me out of here. Um, yeah, that's, that's something that, that I struggle with sometimes as well. Yeah. Um, that's something. I go through. Sorry, go ahead. You weren't oh, finished. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, that I go through periods where I'm pretty comfortable and then I go through periods where I feel much less secure. Um, and it's not necessarily tied to anything in particular that's happening in my life or research. It's just a feeling that can show up sometimes. Yeah. Um, mm. mm-hmm. that, that's so, 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 certainly something I struggle with too. And I mean, I think like basically everyone I've talked to um, struggles with imposter syndrome at least sometimes. And like if it's something that thing with vir- which virtually everyone in this career has, is that a sign that there's some like problem with the system itself, or is it just that we all need to accept that this is how we feel, and it doesn't mean it's it's true since everybody feels it. <laughs> or I wonder if there's something about this career path that attracts people who happen yeah. to be prone to imposter syndrome. That's a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it, it's not a, well, it's not a great field to go into if you need a lot of validation mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. Because your papers are torn apart uh, <laughs> rightfully. I mean, that's the process, right? You yeah. submit a paper yeah. and the reviewers are supposed to see if they can find anything wrong with it. Yeah. And they're supposed to dig into it and make you work for it. Um, you know, your classwork can be like that all the way through your education. You know, it can be very, um, can be can be brutal sometimes. And uh, the giving talks and things, you can get hard questions. So it's, you know, you can sometimes get validation, but it's not a it's not a safe source of mm-hmm. of that validation. You shouldn't be basing your sense of self worth on it. Um, yeah. yeah, and I guess um, well, we we also I guess folks who end up with a, a PhD, um, we tend to be kind of self aware that we, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Mm. You know, we we hopefully we have enough confidence to say, well, I know a lot about something very specific. Like hopefully folks feel comfortable in their specific, super specific area, but the process of, and this doesn't have to just be for PhD students. I don't know why I qualified it that way. It could be anybody studying, studying science or involved in science in any way. You just become aware that there's so much stuff you don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess that's quite different from being in school. Like if you're in school, maybe even high school, and maybe even early undergrad, you can get a little bit of a false sense of like, I got this. I have a, I have a hold on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing well in my classes and I've, I can fit all this in my head. And then just the further down this educational role, road you go, you, you start to learn like, no, no, there's whole universes of knowledge that I will never fully wrap my head around, even if I do nothing but study. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that leads to imposter syndrome. I don't know. We should, we should, uh, that's not a disability episode, but we could have a whole imposter syndrome episode. We <laughs> could we? have a whole podcast just about imposter syndrome and science. Actually, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Do you have time? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no I, I don't. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. Um, 
yeah, there's uh, the the flowchart of my productivity right now is uh, yeah. Do you have time to take on a new project? No, no, I don't. There's only one path. There's one path. No, you don't. <laughs> Just go straight down. Well, okay, that was a bit of a diversion for me, um, somewhat, but it is something that John talked about, so I guess it was fair game for us to to get to dig into. Yeah. Um, should, what do you think? Shall we go to the next audio contribution? I think we should, yeah. So that was Rocio, I think. Okay, so I will start this, uh, and thank you, Dr. Caballero Gill, for sending this along. Here we go. Hello, Dan and Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me as part of your program. I made this quick audio. Well, actually, it's not so quick. <laughs> um, I'm responding to a few questions. Um, it seems kind of odd to do an interview on myself, <laughs> but um, I actually started having fun at some point, and so it was kind of, you know, it was kind of fun and okay. Um, it would be nice to do a, a back and forth at some point. I was actually inspired by the last podcast that you had with Sonia Leg, and that was a great episode, by the way. Um, so I kind of try to be Dan <laughs> for some of the questions, and then you know, and then the follow up, and then actually give my answers. So. Yeah, I had some fun. I'm going to pause this and I will, uh, actually, I'm going to just not say anything and then I'll, uh, I'll get started. Hello, this is Rocio Fortin chatting with Rocio Caballero Gil. <laughs> Rocio is a geoscientist born and raised in Lima, Peru. Currently, she's a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Atmospheric, Oceanic and Earth Sciences at George Mason University, a visiting scientist at the Department of Earth, Environmental and Planetary Science at Brown University, and the chairwoman for the board of directors, as well as a member of the Leadership Council for Latinas and Earth and Planetary Sciences, also known as GeoLatinas. She also has a chronic disorder, and today we will explore how she approaches all of these components of her life and how they relate to her work. Thank you, Dan and Caitlin, for having me here today. Um, yes, as you mentioned, I was born and raised in Lima, Peru, and I have been in the USA for a number of years. Uh, to give you a bit more background about me, I am married. I have two children, three-year-old and six-year-old. I am also a paleoclimatologist and paleoceanographer, as you mentioned. I work with various tools to reconstruct environmental and climate change in the geologic past in order to understand how different parts of the climate system respond and interact almost to create a picture um, left behind in the geological record. The tools I typically use are stable isotope geochemistry, biomarkers, macropaleontology, trace element geochemistry, statistical models, and many other things. This means I work in the lab, but also with computers on a day-to-day. And conferences, field work, and other related trouble are also typically part of this job. Between my work as a geoscientist and an amazing organization I recently co-founded with a couple of inspiring colleagues, and that organization, as you mentioned, is called GeoLatinas, I am able to do some of the, in some ways, um, to fulfill the passion, my passion of connecting and uplifting others, in particular women of color, sometimes via mentoring and coaching. Lastly, I have lived, as you mentioned, with my chronic disorder, myasthenia gravis, for almost most of my academic career, and I'm thrilled to be here talking about how this disorder relates in to the many layers of my life, including science. 
Rocio Ferdinand. <laughs> wow, that was a lot of info. Uh, why don't we start by the last part you shared? What is myasthenia gravis and how does it work? Sure. Myasthenia gravis, also called MG for short, is a chronic autoimmune neuromuscular disorder characterized by weakness in the skeletal muscles that worsens after periods of activity and improves after periods of rest. These muscles are responsible for functions involving breathing and moving parts of the body, including arms and legs. Myasthenia gravis is a rare disorder with occurrences in of one in five to seven thousand people. We think it's highly underdiagnosed and also misdiagnosed, and that's why we have the big range. These are definitions what I just told you, uh, and and some of the numbers come from sources like the Muscular Dystrophy Association, the Mayo Clinic, and others. Um, and what these definitions and numbers can begin to explain is actually the impact of myasthenia or MG and other invisible disorders on our lives inside and outside of science. So I'm thrilled to be here to maybe shed some light on some of that. Rocio for Dan. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. How does it impact or how does MG impact your life as a scientist? What specific things about science are more difficult because of MG? Well, the first thing to know is that a chronic disorder isn't stationary necessarily, <laughs> but rather has life cycles. Um, in addition, myasthenia gravis is highly variable. Uh, so within those natural cycles of pre and post diagnosis, testing a specific treatment and, you know, then another and another treatment, um, there are fluctuations within a day. So sure, if you have MD well controlled, these variations are not much um, or not as bad compared to some other people not having a well control. I was diagnosed the month I was taking my preliminary exams. And those are my the qualifying exams for PhD candidacy. In fact, <laughs> I collapsed um, as I walked to the building where I was defending my proposal. I took it as an opportunity to brush off the nerves uh, because I was a little nervous. Took a minute to gain my muscle strength back, and then you know be able to stand up and and just be there for a minute, and then went inside the building. So that image of falling, taking time trying again is essentially what happened through my academic career since then. I was lucky to have amazing scientists around, starting by my at-the-time advisor, Tim Herbert, and longtime collaborators and mentors, Steve Clements and Harry Dowsett, who were and still are supportive, kind, patient, and very smart. <laughs> so it all helps to you know continually be inspired and also supported. Um, I also had amazing peers, and you know some examples are Alex Satsano, Elizabeth Thomas, Jess Rodesill, Bronwyn Konecki, and so many others that, you know, you wouldn't have time in that podcast to list them all. But needless to say, I had amazing supportive people around me. So in terms of the impact, all of this, you know, all these people and all these, the environment played a factor in it. Um, again, first you have to remember that not all disorders are the same and also that mycena has variable symptoms that can be managed better as the treatment changes and it can change a lot through, you know, through time. So in my case, my first seven years with this disorder, the treatments weren't good enough. Um, and I was a little stubborn and I didn't think, I thought they were good enough. They really weren't compared to where I am now. So it took seven years to find something that worked decently for me. I was in those seven years, I was in the hospital, you know, four, maybe five times, a uh, couple of weeks, weeks each time. And I also had a lot of home treatments, sometimes every few months, sometimes every other week. Um, I also had 
two children in the process. So, you know, of course, that plays a factor into the hormonal imbalance and, and how that uh, ties into my uh, chronic disorder, my sina gravis. So all of that um, impacted my morale as a scientist big time, <laughs> big imposter syndrome at some point, and, and still, you know, as we all uh, can deal with it. And physically, um, I was away from the lab, you know, quite a few times. So on top of that, I work remotely. And so that made things even a lot more difficult. So the times that I was in the lab, I had to plan my breaks so that I would have the muscle to continue working. So holding up my pet in the film code or holding a sieve to process microbiological samples for a couple hours in a row, that may be nothing to a normal person. And in fact, it was nothing for me before my sthenia gravis. But post-diagnosis, breaks were really the lifesaver. I also work with many amazing people, but in particular at the time, you know, when I first started dealing with MG, um, our lab manager, April Martin, she would go out of her way to make sure that I felt safe because there's also this emotional and, and psychological component of, you know, okay, what if I fall and I actually break something? Who can I call if I'm, you know, out in the lab working and I'm alone? So April was a lifesaver in more than one way. And so were many of my peers, actually, um, always willing to be there and, and be able to call them in case I needed help to, you know, from actually something serious uh, health-wise or just to open a tank gas, a nitrogen tank gas, because that was just too hard to do at times for me. Something that was painfully hard for me um, on how uh, my Stina impacted my science was that I could not give presentations for a while. And, you know, I was very used to and really enjoyed presenting my work and doing outreach and talking to people. So now I'm, I'm in a much better place. You know, I actually can give seminars and talks and, and can stand and, and speak <laughs> of what I love and my passion. Um, but there were times in those first seven years where I would not be able to even speak in that meeting. You know, I would, I would start the meeting, show my research, talk science, and within 10 minutes, I couldn't go on. The worst part wasn't only that I could not just you know, speak and communicate. It was actually that my respiratory system was starting to get compromised enough each time that I would need to take longer breaks, sometimes even go to the ER um, because, you know, MG is a life-threatening disorder. So, so yeah, it was, it was the first few years um, with MG and academia that were really, really tough. Um, and that, that kind of like, that made an impact on me. Another tough thing um, that's actually something that I still have in my mind, I could not go on scientific drilling expeditions anymore. So I went on a short scientific cruise pre-diagnosis. I loved it. I I was so in love with that and I really wanted to do it again. Uh, and I felt I could do it over and over again, but then, you know, that wasn't in the cars for me. So that wasn't an option. Um, now that I have a better treatment, I feel I could do it, but my children are very young. And so that's not an option for me right now. So that's, those are some of the impacts that I have found um, with MG on my science. Rocio Ferdinand, what special accommodations in science would be most helpful for people with myasthenia gravis to compensate for any disadvantage? Well, it depends on the treatment a patient with myasthenia gravis is having um, at the moment and also how effective that treatment is, I think. Um, scientists with myasthenia gravis, like myself, could benefit um, at various points in time from having perhaps physical help, like areas uh, with access to wheelchairs, you know, perhaps in the lab, in the offices, in the buildings themselves, ramps, elevators. I mean, I've used all of those at one point or another. Um, 
we can certainly, and we're probably not the only ones, benefit from working with people we can have non-judgmental conversations with to find ways to make things work. Um, and like I mentioned, there's a high variability in the day-to-day -day and beyond for people fighting Mycena gravis. So, you know, to give you an example, one could be outside doing field work from the morning until 3 p.m. and then in bed, you know, the whole rest of the day. So being conscious of the variability uh, that comes with Mycena gravis and how it impacts our work is the first good step. But then how our collaborators, bosses, et cetera, react to that and how we can find ways to work together, um, that's another story. And so perhaps um, holding the space to have those conversations and make things move is is already a good a good way to help um, people with MG. Rocio Fardian, how can colleagues or in, as individuals be most helpful in their day-to-day -day interactions with you? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm currently in a privileged position with my Maestina Gravis being somewhat controlled. Not back to normal yet. You know, who knows if that will ever happen. <laughs> I still hope, but who knows. Um, but at least being back to being enough of Rocio again. And so, you know, at least compared to those seven years. And so the journey back has been difficult. I want to do all the things that I didn't do before. And, and that can also bring some overwhelming times. Um, I also do have a lot on my plate. And so probably partly due to this compensating merge. So the answer I think would be just to be patient. Um, the thing is, you know, I think we should all keep in mind that many issues that many of us are dealing with are invisible. And so many of us are fighting battles nobody can see and kindness and patience can go a long way. So I think this question actually applies to people way beyond and outside of Myasthenia Gravis. Rocio Fartan, what are good things about having Myasthenia Gravis as a scientist? Well, there are quite a few things, <laughs> but I'll try to be brief here. Um, don't take me wrong. My senior Kravis is in a walk in the park and, you know, it's life-threatening. It's actually a very serious disorder. However, I am always personally looking for the silver lining. And with my senior Kravis in my case, I, I see some things that are actually a plus that I was able to to learn because of MG. So because of my Sina Gravis, I feel I'm more flexible and adaptable, which helps in multiple ways when working in large teams, um, you know, doing science and also uh, doing work that impacts our science more, more so or kind of like what we do with Geolatinas. Um, things sometimes don't go as expected in the lab or in life as we, as we have seen in recent months with, you know, all the, um, uh, the quarantine time. So I feel like my senior helps, has helped me uh, be a lot more flexible and adaptable than I would have been otherwise. I'm also perhaps more resilient. Um, and that's, you know, it's almost like my senior is not just another thing I survive, but also that I can use to help me thrive. It can inspire others that I mentor in science. It can inspire my peers. It definitely serves as self-inspiration many times. Other skills, perhaps, are that I have polished because of my Sina Gravis. I am better at managing up, <laughs> delegating, listening, much more effective teamwork, uh, prioritizing restoration times in order to continue doing. Because, like as I mentioned, my Sina Gravis is, you know, it's worse with time and, you know, continued use of muscles. And so having that break um, is good, not just physic physically, but also mentally. Okay, that was the end of it. <laughs> or I guess I'll just do the official. 
Thank you again, Dan and Caitlin, for this opportunity and for being flexible and letting me record this interview in a perhaps different format than you're used to. I look forward to answering any other questions, maybe even do a follow-up interview face-to-face or rather screen-to-screen online. (laughs) Um, Here's wishing you and your loved ones are safe and healthy. And again, let me know if you have any questions and I'll talk to you later. Bye. That was great. Thank you very much, Dr. Rocio Caballero-Gill. That was a really good contribution. Yeah, that was really great. Do you what? Yeah. Do you want to start, Caitlin? Do you have some mm-hmm. thoughts? So something that really spoke to me was the fact that her d- d- disability varies a lot over time. Um, and that's something I really, really re- re- relate to since stammering is, is also very, very both. There are some t- t- days when I barely stammer at all. There are some days and situations where I seem to stammer on every single syllable. And that lack of consistency makes it very hard to plan. Um, Again, so yeah, that that was something I really related to. Um, I also liked how Rocio talked about the importance of it the importance of having supportive peers and managers, um, you know, that can really make all the difference. Yeah. She said, uh, Chris, a phrase that she said that I liked is that a chronic disorder isn't stationary is how she put it. Yeah. And that's just what you were talking about, that the symptoms can change over time Yeah, and different people have different symptoms as well. So you have to be careful not to, put everybody in the same basket, uh, people with the same disability that is the same named disability could have very different experiences of it. Um, and she also mentioned just what we were talking about, how the experience impacted her morale and fed into her imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, we were, we were just discussing that, that that's something that a lot of people are subject to. Um, and from the outside, I can see how, uh, constantly kind of struggling with your own physical body could mm-hmm. easily feed into that feeling of, Oh, I, I guess I'm, I guess I don't belong here. Um, I like what she said about planning breaks, you know, making sure that she was giving herself some time just to recognize that her body has physical limitations. Um, and that's something that comes, sounds like it comes with her disorder and, and that can also come with just getting older as well and just realizing that like, oh yeah, I can't just mm. push my body constantly. I have to mm. give it some respect and some time. I have to listen to it as well. I have to listen to what it's telling you. Um, lab safety. She mentioned that there were special lab safety concerns that she needed to make sure she had people around to uh, help out with some certain tasks sometimes. Um, I thought that was certainly relevant for people who plan those spaces and for people who plan kind of lab access. I guess that's not really you and me, so we can't speak too much to that. Um, I was, I was also sad that she said she couldn't give presentations for a while because I, I, I I have that in common with her that she said she really enjoys giving presentations and and I do too, honestly, it's something that that I like. So, um, I can try to imagine, I can't really imagine what it would be like to just simply not be able to do that. Um, I mean, I guess the pandemic has given me a little tiny window into what it might be like to not like be able to go places and see people, but it's not the same. It's not the same um, as, yeah. Um, So I'm I'm throwing a lot out there. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add? 
Um, the the one final thing um was about this question that we've asked everybody about: what are the positive things about your disability? And I suppose when I came up with this question, I was coming at it from like the um the neurodiversity perspective, which stammering fits quite nicely into um stammering isn't objectively bad i mean it's slightly uncomfortable but but it isn't like it's it's only bad because society says so there isn't any objective um you know it isn't objectively negative whereas i feel like um when we ask these these this question of people um with um physical disabilities which cause them pain and you know in this case could even be life-threatening you know um i don't want to be the sort of person that that insists that everything has to be um got a mystic i think it can be harmful to insist on saying go be optimistic find that this silver lining um instead of just accepting that this is a re- really d- difficult situation. Um, so yes, I just wanted to put that sort of disc- d- disc- d- disclaimer out there. But even yeah. still, uh, Rosicio and also Crystal um, came up with some re- really interesting stories of how like they've developed certain skills which they um m- might not have developed as easily otherwise um, i really liked what rocio said about learning to manage up that was really interesting mm. I wrote down the phrase uh, that many of us are fighting battles that nobody can see. Mm-hmm. So be patient and kind. And that her experience has made her more flexible and adaptable and more, more compassionate in that way. Um, and yes, with your very important disclaimer uh, noted that no, we're not trying to force a narrative of it being positive on anyone. Um, Cause you know, if Crystal had come along and, and basically just stopped and said oh, nothing, like that, we'd, we'd need to that we would accept that we would yeah, say, absolutely. okay, yeah, that's your if that's your experience, then that's totally valid yeah. and fine. Um, but yeah, I just I just I did like what Rocio said about um, that. Be be mindful that other people could be fighting things that you might mm-hmm. not be aware of. Yeah. Shall we move on to the last yeah, contribution? Let's move on to that one. Okay, so we have a written contribution from Edward Doddridge, and uh, he's written some of these responses. Uh, I can just start, uh, you know, reading this contribution. Uh, so this contribution is um, 
partly from the perspective, and I didn't read these beforehand because I wanted to have just a more kind of genuine reaction to them at the time. Uh, this perspective uh, that Ed has sent along is actually something that I can relate to because it's about uh, supporting a partner with uh, a chronic illness. Uh, so I'll read Ed's contribution and then I'll tell you a little bit about my experience with that as well. Okay, so here we go. What does it mean to deal with a disability in academia? This is from Ed. Ed Dodderidge. I think it makes the challenges harder, and there are plenty of those to go around. It also means you have fewer reserves to call on when things go wrong. Before I go on, I think it's worth clarifying that I don't have a disability myself, but my wife does. For the last decade, she has had chronic fatigue syndrome. It's not even a real diagnosis, just a label the medical profession gives you when you can do less than half of what you should be able to do, and they don't know why. Oh. Uh, many people with chronic fatigue syndrome develop it after an illness. And that's really the easiest way to explain what it's like. Imagine you have the flu. You're tired all day long, but sleeping doesn't help. If you try to hold on to a complex thought, it floats away into the brain fog. Now imagine you get over the flu, but the tiredness stays. Some of the fog clears, but perhaps only enough that you can remember how sharp you used to be. That's chronic fatigue syndrome. This is really nicely written. written. It's, it's easy to read. Uh-huh. It's easy to like, yeah. Um, when it all started, I was in my third year of undergrad. Imogen was in her fourth. We were getting married in six months' time. It was also exam season. Partway through, Imogen got the flu. Nothing too surprising there. It was winter. We were both a bit run down from a busy semester of study, work, volunteering, and sport. She started feeling better and pushed through to try to continue her university work. But then she stopped getting better and got much, much worse. The next six months were horrendously difficult. Between us, we dropped three part-time jobs and half a dozen different sports and other activities. Imogen dropped all but one of her university subjects. Over the next year, we both saw psychologists and struggled to work out how to deal with the fallout of such a cataclysmic change to our lives. Imogen had one semester of study left for her degree, and it took the next two years for her to finish. After that, we had a 10-month break before moving halfway around the world so that I could start my PhD at Oxford. I'd never been to Europe. I'd only left Australia twice, and one of those trips was by sailing ship. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, or how hard it would be to build a new life 17,000 kilometers from home. Imogen and I quickly realized that we couldn't keep up with the frantic pace of life. In those first few months, we struggled to prioritize. If you can only do one thing each day, how do you choose what to do? Making friends requires spending time together, but everyone else has so much more time than we did. In a community full of people spontaneously making plans and having adventures, we needed to plan ahead. Imogen doesn't have enough energy for us to just decide to do something in the evening. Anything more taxing than a quiet night in requires at least a day's notice, and even then she can only do one thing each day. Sometimes that one thing is going to the doctor or cooking dinner. There were lots of events we didn't go to in Oxford, but even so, we had an incredible time. 
It takes time to make good friends. The sort of friends that understand why you can't do anything today or tomorrow or maybe even the next day. The sort of friends who will show up with food and just quietly sit there when you don't have energy, any energy left to talk. The sort of friends that let you rely on... Sorry, the sort of friends that you rely on when times are hard and celebrate with when times are good. By the time we left Oxford, we had friends like that. It just took us longer than others. Of course, over the years, we have also met people who didn't understand, who insist on asking, but what do you do all day? Who instantly start withdrawing from a conversation when they decide that Imogen isn't worth networking with. It makes me so angry every time, standing there, watching these jerks dismiss her just because she can't work at the moment. The next time that you meet somebody new, don't ask them what they do. Ask them what excites them. Ask them about who they are, not what they get paid to do. I promise you, you'll have a more interesting conversation. And when you meet someone who doesn't have a job, for whatever reason, you won't have to stand there like an awkward fool as they try to save you from embarrassment. (laughs) One of the biggest challenges we faced during my PhD was money. I know grad students never have enough, but we were trying to support two people on one stipend. It was impossible. My monthly stipend paid the rent, and then we had about 150 pounds left over to pay for everything else. If it weren't for our families helping us get by, we wouldn't have been able to buy food. Every time I think about it, it reminds me that so much of academia is simply inaccessible to people without family support. Without their support, I would have turned down my road to scholarship. Imogen couldn't physically work, and we couldn't have survived without the extra money. It's that simple. When the time came to think about postdocs, we decided to move to the U.S. And then we went through it all again, building a new life in a new city, making new friends. These aren't unique challenges, but chronic fatigue just makes everything harder. It's like trying to run while breathing through a straw. Supporting a partner through a chronic illness is tough. Doing that while working in academia has only been possible because of the support that we have both received from family, friends, and colleagues. The final sentence of my thesis acknowledgement is, if I had known four years ago how hard it would be, I hope I would still have been brave enough to try. Being brave is something Imogen teaches me every day, no matter the challenge she turns up. Even when she knows how hard it will be just to get to the starting line. She still turns up. Uh, thank you, Ed, and thank you, Imogen, wow. for sharing that. That was that was that was really um, impactful. Yeah, that was really amazingly written. I'm getting mm-hmm. all emotional from that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was great. Do you? Um, I, I potentially have a lot of thoughts, so I want to give you a minute to react. Yeah. First. Um, just, just a few things I wrote down that there, the, um, where it get, gets s- s- said, when you meet someone new, don't ask, don't ask them what they do. Um, and I, like, that's something I always do. And I feel bad about that. Oh. That isn't something I'd, I'd ever questioned. Um, but I th- think that, um, in our society, our job is uh, um, our identity 
And so, so, so when you are unable to, to work for health reasons, then what everyone expects your identity to be just sort of falls apart. Um, so that that isn't something I've had to th- think about from that perspective since I haven't been unemployed. Um, but but I have had times in my life when I realize that builds just my entire identity around being a scientist is really unhelpful. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That if you put all of your validation eggs into that basket, yeah. it's a it's a pretty dangerous gamble. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, yeah, and then ju- not- just the experiences of moving overseas and making new f- friends, like Ged, I've done that that twice. Um, although I think Ed m- might be better back in australia these days so he might have even done it three times and and yeah starting over like that that is really really tough and i i can't imagine doing it um with that sort of limitation yeah 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 yes i believe he is back in australia the last time i saw him was end of February at Ocean Sciences right. um, at the at the ice cream reception on the very last oh. day. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I can relate to, to a lot of what Ed has talked about here. Yeah. Um, so my wife, since she was about 14, um, she has had endometriosis. And uh, so endometriosis is where the endometrial tissue that normally grows in the uterus grows in other parts of the body. And it can be extremely painful. The adhesions can end up uh, in all kinds of places in, in the body. They can end up, um, you know, attached to nerves and organs. And um, so then, uh, yeah, basically it causes a lot of pain. There's also um, a lot of bleeding potentially, uh, and it drains your energy and uh, Steph has, has really had a long battle with this uh, since, since she was you know, really a, a very young teenager. And um, while I don't want to go on too long about it, I'd, like, I'd rather give her an opportunity. But um, I just wanted to share one anecdote. It's a small thing, but it's something that stuck with me. We were in Fort Collins, Colorado, and we were, it was a Friday night, and we, were, we had decided to try to go out to eat. And this is a small, small thing in the grand scheme of things, but it was it was a moment that stuck with me. I don't know why I'm qualifying it so much. Um, so we were in the parking garage. We had driven downtown. Uh, Fort Collins has a beautiful old town. That's the name of it. They call it Old Town. That's their downtown. Uh, they have just a gorgeous, active, vibrant uh, old town. And uh, we were going to go eat at one of our favorite places there. And we got to the car park, and uh, and Steph basically had to say like no, I can't do it. Like I'm in too much pain. I'm too drained. Um, which of course I understood. I mean, we'd been together a long time. We'd had many instances like that, but I just remembered watching, there was a couple who were like in their sixties, you know, leaving their car and walking somewhere, you know, they were, they were going to go 
out to enjoy their evening together and enjoy a date night together. And it was just striking that like that age was not the the factor here, right? There was a couple in their sixties who were going to go enjoy their evening together. Um, and then me and Steph weren't able to do that same thing. You know, we, we had to just go back to our, to our place, which is fine. We can do that. That's not like a, so it's not, it's not like a major problem, but it's a small example. Mm-hmm. The, um, but yeah, she's, she's had trouble with employers not understanding, like employers not being flexible, employers not making accommodation, uh, which these days I go ahead and just straight up call uh, ableist because they're basically holding her to the this exact same standard mm-hmm. as somebody who doesn't have chronic pain and doesn't have chronic fatigue, um, which is uh, unfair. She wants to be a contributing member of society like everybody else. And uh, you know, for her to have that opportunity, she needs an employer who gets that, no, there's an upper limit on what I can do. We... Uh, one of her previous employers uh, refused to let her work from home. Um, um, and of course that was very challenging for her. She had to go in anyway, despite um, the chronic pain and the fatigue and she had to fight it every, every, just about every day. Of course now post pandemic, they've suddenly figured out <laughs> how to let everybody work from home and it's suddenly no problem at yeah. all. And like, Oh gee. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so it really puts their, their old behavior in a bad light. Yeah. It's showing that, yeah, they, they could have, they could have. Um, so, Steph did have an operation. She's had many uh, surgeries over the years um, to try to address this. And it's a, it's a very tricky disease to attack because um, the endometrial tissue can end up um, in, in, anywhere in the body, basically. So uh, you need a skilled surgeon who knows how to go in and find it and, and get it out from those specific places. Um, it's not as, It's not like... There's not necessarily a one-time solution for it. It's something where you might have to have surgeries periodically. Um, luckily, the past couple of years has been, have been pretty good. Um, she did have a major surgery that seems to have really helped and have has certainly bought us some time. And it, uh, well, well, we'll see. You know, and I'm, I'm going on a bit long, but I really just wanted to say that, like, um, I don't know if I've processed it as much as Ed has. Mm. Like Ed has clearly like really processed it. I think for me, I, I think we just try to get through it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we just like, well, this is what we have to do. We have to keep going. We have to keep working. You know, like her and I both have to keep working and we, we both have to keep parenting and we both have to keep doing our household stuff. And so we just, I don't know, we just do it. And, you know, if, um, I'm often the person doing doing the housework and I'm not saying that to get points. I'm just saying that like, I don't know, we just are a unit and mm-hmm. we just understand that there's a finite capacity for getting stuff done. And we just, we just try to get on with it. And so I really appreciate that Ed has put so much careful thought into this and has, uh, um, has done such a beautiful job, mm-hmm. uh, illustrating, you know, his, his experience with, with Imogen. Yeah, I could go on, but I shouldn't, um, we don't have too much longer, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you again so much, Ed and Imogen, for sharing your experience. Um, what do you think, Caitlin? Any, any other reactions to that? Yeah, just um, that that final sentence of the basics acknowledgments really got to me in a way. If I had known four years ago how hard it would be i hope i would still have been brave enough to try that's it yeah wow 
Psst. Don't give up. I think that's... Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what we're saying. Um, well, I guess, shall we wrap it up there? Mm-hmm, I think I that guess we've... brings us to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to say here at the end um, a big thank you again. Thank you so much to um, Crystal Vasquez, John Robson, uh, Rocio Cabiero Gill, and Ed Doddridge and Imogen. But uh, thank you so much for all of your contributions uh, and for sharing that vulnerability with us. You know, it's not necessarily easy to get on a a public forum. This isn't a huge public forum, but it's still out there on the internet. Um, so it takes courage to do that. And I really applaud that, that vulnerability. Um, and thank you, Caitlin, for helping me come up, well, not helping me, but for coming up with the idea to do this series and for helping me uh, co-produce it. Well, thank you, Dan, for doing all the technical work and the hosting and all of that. It's a big job and you, and you know, you know what what you're doing with it in a way that that I really don't. So, yeah, thanks for uh, giving us your platform to uh, share these stories. There you have it. My conversation with Caitlin Naughton, which included a lot of contributions from some really excellent, open-hearted people. So thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed that. Let me give you all the Twitter information if you want to find these folks online. You can find Crystal Vasquez at Caffeinated Chris. That's spelled K-R-Y-S. Dr. Rocio Caballero-Gill. You can find her at Caballero-Gill. So she managed to get her last name. That's good. And also check out Geo Latinas as another Twitter account there to get in touch with that network. You can find John Robson at John I. Robson. Thanks to John for his contribution. And also you can find Ed Dodderidge at E. Dodderidge on Twitter. You can follow the show at Climate SciPod. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. And I think that's all that we need to say. Oh, yeah, the Chronically Invisible blog. If you go to Crystal Vasquez, go to her Twitter page. Um, she has a link to the, uh, there's a Twitter profile for the Chronically Invisible blog that you can check out. Thank you again so much to the contributors. Thank you again so much to Caitlin for everything you've given us for this series and for this episode in particular. I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And I hope that the audience, I hope you all have enjoyed it as well. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.